This podcast is sponsored by the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification. Want to become an authority in the ancestral health community? Join the ranks of today's top experts in paleo and primal living by completing the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification, the world's premier program in primal lifestyle principles. Start today for only a dollar down by visiting primalblueprint.com slash get hyphen certified. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, introducing your host, L. Russ. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today we have Loretta Bruning. She is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and the author of Meet Your Happy Chemicals. That's innermammalinstitute.org if you're interested. Welcome to the show, Loretta. How are you? Hi, thanks. Nice to be here. You have some really interesting work here, Inner Mammal Institute. Now, let's talk a little bit about why you started this and how and what the philosophy is, because I think a lot of our listeners are going to be very interested in what you have to say about our brain chemicals and how it relates to animals. So I noticed that people around me have lots of ups and downs. And when I was a little kid, I surely noticed that, as most people do. And I always wanted to make sense of it. And the formal theories that I studied in the context of being a professor of management didn't really satisfy me. And I had children. And my experience with my children, again, it, it just nothing explained the brain to me. But I kept reading little bits about the brain chemicals that motivate us and the role of those brain chemicals in animals. And it's so obvious when you know what our happy chemicals do in animals, it's so clear why our impulses are so confusing. And, and why is it so clear? Give us that connection. So the brain, the brain chemicals that cause happiness, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin, each of them is released in an animal when it sees a way to meet a need. But when I say a need, it's a very specific need and a very specific feeling, and it's not the kind of things you're really expecting. So I'll start with the most uh, controversial one, serotonin. So animals are very competitive in their groups. Mammals are the animals that live in groups, and they're always competing to pass on their genes. And so when your brain sees that you're going to be the one to um, get that mating opportunity or that bit of food, it, it rewards you with a little bit of serotonin. And uh, that's not in, in anything anyone likes to admit, but it explains the world so much. <laughs> now, why do you believe that reward system is there? Give us the sort of the, you know, that the primal animal perspective right? From, sure, from evolution, sure. how, how, that, how that would pay off. Is that to sure. keep them con to continuing to try to mate? Is that what we're looking at? Uh, yes. So animals, I always say animals don't understand conception conceptually. Um, it's not, so they're not intending to mate. They're not intending to pass on their genes. It's survival. 
And the natural selection built a brain that's focused on survival. And the way it does that is it rewards you with a brain chemical that feels good when you take a step toward meeting a need. And it warns you with a brain chemical that feels bad when there's a survival risk, which is also a good thing because it warns you to step back, to stop what you're doing and to do something else before your survival is threatened. Give us uh, an example of those two elements in the wild with an animal or comparing it to humans, you know, and what an example we might go through every day that most people can relate to. Yeah. So the greatest example is dopamine. So imagine you're a hungry lion and you haven't eaten in a few days, which is sort of the norm. And if that lion runs after everything it sees, it's going to starve to death before it gets a meal. So it's very careful about where it invests its energy. So it's constantly scanning for opportunity. And when it sees a bit of prey that it thinks it can catch, its dopamine surges and that releases its reserve tank of energy and it goes for it and it feels great. So from our perspective, We're constantly scanning for opportunity. We don't waste our energy on everything. When we see something that we think we can meet our needs and we think we can get it, our dopamine surges, we feel great and excited, and it also releases your reserve tank of energy that says, I'm going to meet my needs. It's worth going for it. Right, and we as humans run into these primal perspective sort of problems when we think that thoughts are primarily dictating maybe how our stress levels are and our body might be responding differently than our thoughts, even though, you know, they're related. If you have a stressful thought, you're angry at someone, you might raise cortisol, et cetera. But can you give us a little more of a a deeper perspective on the human component here and uh, maybe a specific example like the lion one where a human is in that situation, it's detrimental? Sure. So... Predator risk is constant in the state of nature. Animals don't have this idea of like, I'm going to get rid of predators once and for all. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like, you know, if a predator eats your baby tomorrow, today, then tomorrow you're back at the water hole having to live alongside that animal. So we have inherited a brain that's designed to scan constantly for threat. The complication is that animals focus on threats that are reaching their sensory receptors, whereas humans can abstract. So we say to ourselves, I'm going to make sure that no predator ever eats one of my babies again. So I'm going to look for the advance warning signs. And that's great because we have protected our babies from predators. But as a result, we look for an advance warning sign and an advance to that warning sign and an advance to that warning sign. And we have a huge stock of extra neurons whose only job is to um, wire in abstractions that help us um, expand our information to be safer and safer and safer. And we never want to stop. And so then I guess on that note, our perspective, which is different for each individual, but let's say your perspective is um, somewhat mostly of a fearful, paranoid person, let's say then you're sort of eliciting that fear response and the, you know, sort of prey response on a regular basis where someone who might sort of take a hit and let it roll off their shoulders uh, would have a different chemical response. Oh, yes. So um, the interesting thing is when we're born, we have billions of neurons, but very few connections between them. 
And those connections build in our early experience. By the time you're 20-ish, the neural pathways that you've used a lot have gotten myelinated. They're very efficient. They conduct electricity very well. And so those early experiences that you had that got myelinated, that tells you how to survive in the world. And whenever you deviate from your myelinated neural network, you feel like you're doing something wrong. You're not quite safe. So really what we'd rather be doing is learning from experience, but it's, it's really hard to do unless you understand that your old myelinated pathways are not necessarily a good survival guide. I want to definitely talk to you about how we can build new neural pathways to turn on our happy chemicals in new ways and do some rewiring. Before we get into that, can you give us a few more animal, you know, mammal examples that are, can be related to our experience as well, where, you know, maybe you can provide another sort of lion-like example and we can go, ah, I see how that would relate to me in this situation with Bob at the office or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So here's a fascinating one. Oxytocin is a brain chemical that's really special to mammals. Now we inherited the core of our brain from reptiles and reptiles don't tolerate the presence of other reptiles. They don't get close enough, and if they do, then the other guy tries to eat them. So reptiles only release oxytocin during sex. That's the only time they tolerate proximity. But mammals release a huge surge of oxytocin at birth, and that enables us to attach. And mammals protect their babies from predators by clustering in groups. But it's frustrating to be in a group because every other mammal in that group is trying to get the banana for themselves. So that's the trade-off of being a mammal. So what works in the state of nature is if you leave the group, you're immediately eaten by a predator. So you oxytocin warns you not to leave the group. So you feel safe when you're with the group. You feel unsafe when you leave the group because your oxytocin falls. And that creates terrible frustration in daily life because we, we often know that we don't want to just follow the group. We often know that we have to leave the group to stimulate our dopamine or our serotonin. So we're always trying to offset one gain in happy chemicals with one potential loss or a potential threat. It's interesting you mention oxytocin and sex. That's how I always think of it, too, as that chemical that's released. But there's been a lot of talk and some authors out there who have mentioned, like in terms of dating, let's say. And some of these authors have said, hey, if you have, let's say, sex too soon with someone, you might make an attachment that would then prevent you from seeing beyond maybe some of the faults that are there. And so I've listened to some dating coaches over the years who have said, hey, ladies and men, but particularly ladies, don't have sex prematurely because it kind of attaches you. And I guess I'm relating it to that don't leave the group or don't leave this guy or some sort of chemical attachment. Is that, is that valid in your world of what you see? Yeah, I think so, but it's complicated. So um, we, uh, oxytocin is the feeling of trust. So sex is a big burst of oxytocin. And it's hard to get trust in daily life, so it's sure nice to have a big burst of it. Right. But the trouble with all of these happy chemicals is they metabolized in a short time. So now there you are with no oxytocin because it's gone. 
So when you don't have a, a long-term relationship with this person, then you have that sort of crash of oxytocin after the, the boost. And so in some ways, you feel worse off. So um, I know that some people worry about, you know, getting prematurely attached to a person who's not good for you. But then there's the other side of it, of getting um, overstimulated and unrealistic expectations in equivalent to like if I eat a donut, you know, my dopamine soars for a few minutes, but then I crash afterwards. Right. Um, So we're always looking for ways to... um, get that next reward, that next stimulator of our happy chemicals without doing things that are um, unrealistically exaggerated that get us into trouble in the long run. Now, later on we might talk about, and you mentioned on your website, about how you know we learn this sort of response from our parents and from people around us. And so it's important, of course, to live by example when we are around children and we can, we can change that about ourselves. But as me as an individual and everyone listening, how can I build a new neural pathway to turn on my happy chemicals in a new, more productive, better way? And I guess the question before that would probably be, well, how do I know that I'm kind of misusing these chemicals? How can I be aware? Like, what's the, what are some indicators that might say, hey, you know what? You need some rewiring. What I always say is focus on the behavior you want rather than the behavior you don't want. So if you have a behavior that's um, giving you bad feelings, you want to feel good, um, and you just keep going back to that behavior that leads you to feel bad, That's because an old neural pathway is creating an expectation. Because sometimes long ago, you did that thing and it felt good. Here's a simple example. If I flunk a math test and then I go to a party, the party feels good. That tells my brain, okay, when you feel bad about a math test, go to a party. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure everyone who's taken a math test wants to go to a party immediately afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Now... Um, you might say, well, could there be another solution to the bad feeling of flunking a math test? But every time I try to go to that other solution, I end up feeling bad rather than good. So the answer is the acceptance of bad feelings in the short run when you know that your old way of feeling good is just an old myelinated neural pathway. And to make that new pathway, it's hard to say this, but you have to accept the bad feeling for 45 days. Choose a new behavior and repeat it for 45 days. And the simple analogy is this. Think of your brain as a jungle of neurons. If you were slashing a new trail through a jungle of neurons, it's really hard. It feels exhausting. And after all that effort to slash to take one step, By the next day, the pathway has grown over again, and you have to start over. So you would just rather take the highway through the Amazon, even though it leads to places you don't really want to go. But if you slash the same trail every day for 45 days, then a new trail will establish, and that trail is conducting the electricity in your brain. And once the trail is established, your electricity will flow, and you'll feel normal. But until then... All that slashing gives you the feeling that your survival is threatened, 
So during those 45 days, don't put all your energy into other things. Don't buy furniture that needs assembly. Just give yourself the time and calm and peace to just repeat that one new behavior you're trying to establish. Uh, what's an example either in your own life or some successes that you've seen with other people of such a behavior that has been transformed? So, I mean, obviously I can think of things like addictions or smoking cigarettes or, or the obvious ones there, but, but what would be something even more subtle or something that would relate to people out there? Okay. Well, let's talk about the mess on my desk. <laughs> yeah, um, let's talk about that. <laughs> Um, so let's say that I, you know, I sit down at my desk and I look at this pile of mess and I just get this lousy feeling. So how can I convert that into a good feeling? So I'll give you my example, but everyone can find a way to do this for themselves. So in my case, you know, I think, well, some, you know, first will, oh, someday I'm going to have my shit together, whatever. <laughs> so... Um, you know, there is no perfect someday because we always have new things we want to do and the mess is never the first priority. So what I decided, I'm going to have certain times where I'm going to spend 10 minutes on the mess on my desk. I'm not going to expect a grand solution. I'm not going to expect some permanent fix. I'm just going to put on a stopwatch. I'm going to take 10 minutes. I'm going to touch one piece of paper, do something with it, touch another until the 10 minutes is up. Another time I might do it by like six square inches, <laughs> you know, right. they're off six square inches. And then the point is to say, when that's done, I'm going to stop and I'm going to feel good. I'm going to give myself a relaxation rather than saying, oh, yuck, look how much is left. And then I'm going to say, I will do this tomorrow because I ended on a good feeling. So I'm going to do it every day. And if you do it every day, then you get to feel like rather than you're drowning in mess, you get to feel like a problem solver because you really just built a pathway in your brain that says, I can deal with whatever comes along. Right. What about, um, you know, I kind of feel like this is resonating with me in terms of one of the things I noticed once I had learned about cortisol and stress and everything, um, if I were driving and let's say someone cut me off, and you get that startled adrenaline, you know, you just get that, you feel it, you feel it in your yeah. body. Yeah. And, and, and once I became aware of how our bodies work, I literally made a point of, instead of maybe being like, oh, come on, I was so aware of, hey, let's try to breathe this down ASAP, because the longer I'm in this mode, the longer I'm releasing bad chemicals. And so that's one example, at least in my life, that I've been very aware of, because it happens, you're in traffic, someone does something, aggravating and you kind of can't help it. And it is a gut reaction because it's trying to save me from danger. But you know, the road rage that can continue or the people who can stay in that mode, you know, you don't want to be there very long because that is sort of your body saying, Hey, there's a threat. And we, the threat's over after you've gotten cut off and you have not been hit by the car, you're fine. You don't need to carry that on longer. So that's one area that I've seen sort of just with myself and awareness where I, I am aware of it and I make a conscious decision to, you know, breathe it out and try to calm my nervous system down in those moments. Yeah. Can I say something about that? Yeah. Um, so about that feeling of being cut off in traffic, uh, one fascinating thing I learned is that once you release this surge of cortisol, because there, you know, there was a real threat, mm -hmm. 
cortisol stays in your bloodstream for a few minutes. So even once my mind is clear and I'm like, yeah, you know what, we all make mistakes, it's fine, I'm safe, but your body's still going to feel bad for 10 minutes. So during those 10 minutes, don't try to analyze it. Don't say, he cut me off because he has a Mercedes, you know, she cut me <laughs> off because blah, blah, blah. That's what extends the cortisol. Right. So don't try to analyze it, just say, Thank you, body, for preparing me for, uh, for safety. And then just think about something else. That's part of it. But I kind of like that affirmation, sort of just saying, hey, thank you for you know, helping me with this potential threat, and it's over now. I, I like that sort of ad- addressing it directly. Yeah, and it's over, but you're still going to feel it, and you just accept that you don't need to keep trying to explain it. It's just going to be metabolized in 10 minutes, so you're fine. Now, the other aspect of this, what causes people to want to drag it out and to try to say, why did he do that to me? Why are people always doing that to me? Or call their friend and then bitch about it for 10 (laughs) minutes and continue, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's another aspect. So (laughs) this is about generalizing. So if we generalize, why is the top monkey always trying to get the banana? And why am I never the top monkey? Why is everybody taking bananas from me? So your ancestors had good reason to see the world that way. And if you see the world that way, you're going to be releasing cortisol all all the time. And we'll probably never get a banana. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, So you're better off not generalizing from driving to the guy at your office, to the relationship partner, that, you know, they're all separate and don't say, oh, everybody's always putting me down because each incident is separate. Now, the example you mentioned is great about like if you call your friend and go on, that's a mammalian herd or pack or troop. They always bond around common enemies. So when you and your friend talk about how everybody's always putting you down, then you have a, a safety net with that person because a mammalian herd shares the burden of looking out for predators. So you want to say, how can I have friendships without constantly triggering this feeling of constant enemies, uh, of common enemies? And it's very hard to do because the common enemy feeling is really the the natural thing we go to. And it's pretty broad because the common, common enemy doesn't have to be a person. It could be a situation. It could be anything that someone is continually roping other people into or just water cooler talk about something negative out there in the ether. Absolutely. Never ending. So how, um, so I love this 45 days. Um, that makes total sense. It seems totally workable and it's a, it's a nice small process, a slow process. Um, what else can, can we do to help rewire our brain or, or support these chemicals? Or, or what about outputting them at certain times where maybe we're not? Are there times when we need to be more aware and generate certain feelings? Uh, yes, absolutely. You have to create um, a new circuit to generate the feeling because otherwise your electricity will just flow to the place you already have. So I would try to think of a new behavior to generate each of the happy chemicals Again, focusing on the behavior you want rather than overanalyzing the behavior you don't want. And it's really not easy because if um, serotonin is triggered when you feel like you're in the one-up position, 
how can you wire yourself to feel like you're in the one-up position? It's sort of hard because you don't want to be a jerk. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be deluded. So what is a satisfactory way to do that? So I, I use some examples sort of joking, and then I'll tell you a real example. So the jokes, but, but they're sort of real, you know, like have a smoothie named after you. <laughs> local smoothie shop. Love it. I mean, it's, you know what I mean? It's sort of, I, what I say is, you know, you can have a knitting stitch named after you in your knitting club. <laughs> I mean, this is examples of, of ways that people can remind themselves uh, to feel safe in their ability to meet their needs. Because even though your needs are already met, your mammal brain is never going to stop looking. So now let me tell you an example of what I do. Um, uh, if I look around, well, oh, you'll like this. Uh, you're on the internet and you see that somebody else got 10 times more hits than you got. Let's just take that for example. Right. So you know, your brain can immediately go into that, why am I always in the one down position? That's not fair. There's no way I'm ever going to be blah, 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 blah. So how can I create a circuit that just ends that whole thought process? And so what, what I like to think of is, wow, my ancestors had such horrible lives. I am so lucky to have the life I have. Now, if you already have a self-pitying view, you may think of all the examples of how your ancestors had a better life than you. But, but often it's an illusion. I mean, your ancestors didn't have toilet paper, really. Yeah, you know? no. There's a million, <laughs> million reasons why we have a better life. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I do. Interesting. Now, tell everyone, because we didn't get it too into it in the beginning, but you know, you were a United Nations volunteer in Africa. You've been a docent at the Oakland Zoo. You've witnessed animals and their habitat. And tell us how you started to make these connections where, you know, eventually led you to to the book. Well, first I'll say that I have a recommended reading list on my website that helps. So if you go to um, Intermammal Institute and click on free stuff, recommended reading, There's a whole bunch of different books. Now, what fascinated me is one book focuses on this and one focuses on that. And nobody put the pieces together. Nobody connected the dots. And the reason for that, and I could say this because I spent my whole life in academia um, until I was um, old, um, Hmm. (laughs) is that there's the romantic worldview that our society is bad, but everything before us was good. The animals are born happy, children are born happy, um, uh, early tribes were happy, and all bad things are caused by modern society. It's just not true. There's, there's so much evidence uh, of unhappiness elsewhere if you take off that lens. And so I saw that happiness is only short spurts of chemical for that specific moment that an animal needs to exert itself to meet its survival needs. And I'll give you a really simple example. Let's say you're an elephant and you're having a huge drought and you can't find water and you're really thirsty. So each step that elephant takes along the path, it's constantly thinking, you know, is, is this the right, am I on the right path or am I on the wrong path? If I'm on the wrong path, I'm going to die of thirst. I'm going to die of thirst. So the elephant looks around and when that elephant sees 
familiar signs that its brain associates with waterholes from the past, that stimulates its dopamine. But to give it that extra push to, to, to keep give going, it that push and that good feeling of I'm on the track, I'm on the track, right? Or you seeing or seeing land after being stranded on a boat. Those kind of moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't need to be conscious. Um, of course, the good the, the good news is that you know you learned all those associations without trying. But the bad news is that you may have learned some associations that don't work. Got a passion for primal? Join Mark Sisson on a mission to save the world. Become a Primal Blueprint certified expert today. With our dollar down payment program, it's easier than ever. Just pay $1 to start and $89 a month for the next 12 months. The Primal Blueprint Expert Certification is the most comprehensive online Primal Paleo certification program of its kind. Explore the fascinating world of ancestral health from the comfort of your own home with this premier multimedia experience. Perfect for health and fitness professionals, as well as individuals looking to up-level their primal practice. Visit primalblueprint.com slash get hyphen certified to put a dollar down today. What were some associations in your own life, if you don't mind sharing, or that of others you know that didn't work or that had been drilled into you over time that you had to change? Oh, it's a really funny example that I, I talk about in Meet Your Happy Chemicals. And uh, the new edition of Meet Your Happy Chemicals that's coming out will be called Habits of a Happy Brain in 2016 with expanded exercises. So um, something, well, I, I came from a, a, a very troubled household, you might say, and I, I lived around a lot of unhappiness and was always trying to make sense out of it. But I got pretty good at shutting it out and distracting myself. Uh, one way was reading, which was good. Um, but another way, interestingly, was decorating. I got this impulse mm. to decorate. I, I, redec I spent my life redecorating over and over and over. <laughs> now, if you watch the Home and Garden channel, channel, it feels normal. It's just like an addict that goes to a bar and says, well, everybody drinks. You know? Right. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's like you could have a reality show on me over-decorating like they do with hoarders or whatever it is. Like, I've not, yeah, exactly. not heard of that one yet, but I am not surprised. So, okay, so that became sort of an addiction for you. Yeah, and, and traveling too, if you watch the travel channel. But no, so here's how I figured it out then. Um, I, I started thinking, how did I get into this decorating thing? And I recovered the most amazing memory. Things that happen to you in puberty create huge surges in your brain because the stakes are very high in the state of nature in puberty because you have to move to a new locale often to get a mating partner. It's very relevant to passing on your genes. So your brain is designed to store anything that works during puberty. So what worked for me? Well, interestingly, my mother inherited a tiny amount of money, but it was from the father who abused her. So she decided to spend it all on decorating. And it was the only time I ever saw my mother happy and she took me shopping, and she asked my opinion, and she respected my opinion. So it's like a huge surge of like, my brain said, wow, this works. So Right, or the connection, like even if she were long gone and you continued decorating, exactly. you're trying to replicate that feeling of connectedness exactly. with her, yeah, an approval exactly. maybe. And it's not conscious. It would be, if I were a caveman, 
you know, my mother discovered a berry that would cure a disease and I, and she got all excited. And so that's how I learned to find the berry. So it's not a conscious thing, but we wire ourselves. We have mirror neurons that learn from the ups and downs of those around us. And when it happens in puberty, excuse me, it makes an especially large circuit. And we don't understand the reactions that we got as a result unless we really look at it deeply. And then, of course, the next step was, so how to stop myself from decorating. So I decided, it's a technique I called grafting. I decided color makes me happy. I'm going to find ways to use color that graft onto my present needs. So you notice that my website is colorful. And everybody told me, no, you should make it white and gray. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to make it colorful <laughs> um, because that's what keeps me motivated. Interesting. It is colorful. I do love it. And so how, how did you get away, though, that from the act of, you know, going online or going to the store and buying a new rug or buying new paint? I mean, at some point you had to stop yourself, right? You're on your way to the Michaels <laughs> or whatever, and you're, and you're like, I got to, I mean, you know, how did you, I mean, did it take you 45 days? What did you do? <laughs> Um, uh, that was before I, I learned about the 45 day thing. But at this point, it was telling myself, I don't have to give it up. I'm just applying it to a new goal, rather than the goal of feeling connected to my mother. And believe me, I, you know, I am so happy to give up that goal of feeling connected to my mother. She's she's long deceased. Um, so um, if your mother's still alive, please try to connect her. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you've done decorating, does your just house look like crap? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's understand, and, and as I read more and more to understand that our mammal brain wants to connect to a herd and feels unsafe without a herd. Um, but that in order to feel safe, I have to build a new herd that doing things that connected to a herd that's long deceased doesn't do me any good. So I want to serve myself. So how can I feel good in a redirected way rather than the idea that I have to give up something? What, what would you have to say about this? I was talking to someone not too long ago who realized that, you know, from childhood and their mother felt like, they had a need to be liked, and so their behavior was indicative of making some moves where they're kind of in a situation where they're constantly looking for that approval from someone else. How could someone work on rewiring that? Yeah, good question. Well, the first step is self-acceptance, to know that everybody is in the same situation. You may hear experts say, oh, you have a need for approval, like as if there's somebody who does that. It's crazy. Right. <laughs> So, um, uh, by the way, I, I wrote a blog post on this. It's called The Urge to Be Heard at Your Core. Um, I have a blog on psychology today called Your Neurochemical Self that sort of summarizes this. So the idea is that we're all born helpless and vulnerable. And humans are born in a more helpless condition than any other animal. There's a simple rule that the bigger your brain the longer it takes to wire it up for reasons that I explain in all of my books. So we are vulnerable for a long time. So every species has to wire itself to survive without its parents or else the species wouldn't exist before. So it's a sort of uncomfortable position. It's an uncomfortable transition to go from, I'm going to die if I don't get understood by others 
to, I gotta survive whether or not I'm understood by others. Right. Yeah. I so, like that a lot. Yeah. So a fascinating and sort of sad example of how hard this is for everyone. I tell everyone, when you think you got problems, remember that 50 million years ago, monkeys had the same problems. So here's an amazing example. Did you know that animals never feed their kids? Um, and mammals, they, they give them milk, but like a mother monkey never gives solids to her little monkey. So if he wants solids, he has to get it himself. And some of them are pretty hard to get. So in my books, I explain how a monkey learned through mirror neurons slowly to find food, to feed himself. But there's one hard nut to crack, and that's literally cracking nuts. It's really hard. And some monkeys, it takes forever to learn. And if they don't learn, they don't get protein. And without protein, Males don't get the muscle strength to compete for mating opportunity, and females don't get the rich nourishment that they need for their milk and for their, um, their uh, pregnancies. So protein is the coin of the realm in the state of nature, and it all depends on your ability to crack open nuts. So if you go on Google, uh, I'm sorry, if you go on YouTube and see monkeys struggling to crack open nuts, and they try and they try and they try and they can't do it, and once I was at a zoo and I was like, oh, zookeeper, help. This poor monkey can't do it. Help him, help him. And she told me, he's fine. It's a natural behavior. He's well-nourished. Don't worry about it. Do they learn and get assistance from their parents, the monkeys, to help teach them? Or are they just watching the parents do it and then they have to then go attempt it on their own at some point? Here's a fascinating thing. And you know what? I learned this from my hero, David Attenborough. So anyone who's interested. Love him. Love him. <laughs> yes. Yes. So my new book uh, forthcoming is, is dedicated to him. So um, anyone who wants to see more of this, yeah, all of the David Attenborough is great. So um, first, mirror neurons, you observe how another is doing. No, your mother never helps you. Uh, the best you get from your mother is that she leaves little crumbs inside her nuts by accident because for her it's not worth the effort. So the little monkey goes in and picks out the little crumbs and that starts building dexterity. Then he watches what the others are doing and he picks up a rock and he slams it on the nut and he hits his fingers and it hurts. So it's like he wants to give up because he's in pain. But his mirror neurons see that others and others are doing it. Others are doing it over and over. And he also got a dopamine surge from tasting the little bit of the nut. Right. So what David Attenborough shows is, so he tries something and that doesn't work. So a bad feeling tells him to stop and try something different. So that's the whole idea. Whenever I feel bad about something, that it says, stop, try something different. I don't have to have the perfect example because I always have the power to stop again and try something different. And we were talking about approval seeking. So, so that's also, you know, um, nobody is going to permanently meet my needs. Um, but it is natural to want the respect from others because it stimulates your serotonin. And then in a few minutes, your serotonin has gone and you need more. So it's a natural thing. And yet we can't get it every time. Just like we can't eat every hot fudge sundae we see, and we can't adopt every cute baby we see. So we have to live with disappointment, and we can. 
I wonder if there's ever been an example of a monkey who has never managed to crack the nut. Like, is there one out there that just can't seem to do it or do they all manage to do it? Yes, that's funny. You know what? You would think I would I was harsh and cruel and evil if I said it. But David Attenborough says it and he shows it. But here's the funny thing. You are not descended from the monkey that didn't get it. That's the way I think about it. Because mm-hmm. you are descended from monkeys who did what it took to pass on their genes. Otherwise you wouldn't be there. Exactly. Right. And the same with your ancestors. So what I think about is In the state of nature, survival rates are relatively low, and yet your personal ancestors, every single one of them, made it in terms of they did something to get a mate, to produce a baby, and to keep it alive long enough for it to produce a baby. So that's sort of a miracle that every one of your ancestors succeeded. So I say we're all descended from winners. I love it. I love it. I read something on your website, and I, maybe I'm misinterpreting the connotation of the word, but you said something about mammals and bribery. <laughs> Are we talking about the kind of bribery I think we're talking about? Yes, yes. Can so, you tell us a little bit about that? Because that, that was something that kind of struck me. I hadn't seen that one on any National Geographic show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, here's the glory that we live, old, we live long enough to have a few careers, So I've had quite a few careers. So when I was in college, I wanted to save the world like everybody else. And my idea was uh, to learn about how to uh, promote economic development through foreign aid. So I got a job at the United Nations. I went to Africa and I learned that in the country I lived in, that most of the aid money was disappearing into the pockets of the dictator. And that was quite upsetting to me. And so I talked to my colleagues about it. And long, long, long story short, I learned from almost all my colleagues and in I got a transfer in a number of countries. This is what happens. Foreign aid money disappears. So um, in this country, you have to bribe to get a driver's license. You bribe to get a marriage license. You bribe to get a birth certificate because... They know you can't get benefits without it. You have to bribe to get a death certificate because you can't get life insurance without it. Uh, you, you can't collect on life insurance. So in, in most of most third world countries, you have to bribe to do anything. And as I talked to my colleagues, I was like, wow, this is, this is not what I was expecting. I was horrified. And they all said to me, oh, we're just as corrupt and don't worry, this is how it is. And I was like, no, I, I can't do this. So, so I left and I started a new career, but I ended up teaching international management. And so I said, I'm going to teach my students how to say no to bribery rather than just to go along with it. And as the more I studied about monkeys, you know, and I learned about the monkey that submits to the alpha in order to uh, protect itself, in order to avoid the pain of being bitten. And it's easy to see why people would want to bribe a policeman because otherwise they have the power to just bring you to jail for no reason in a lot of countries. So standing up and saying no to bribery is quite risky and I really respect anyone who wants to do it. And I also respect anyone who who knows that it's too risky for them at that moment. And I'll tell you, my grandparents lived in in a mafia-dominated world. I'm Sicilian, 
and uh, from half from Sicily and half from Naples. And I didn't know that the mafia was real when I was young, but when I learned, I, I was horrified. And it's the same mammalian dynamic of deferring to the bully to protect yourself and then glorifying it with some fancy language so you don't feel bad about it. Yeah, that's interesting. I was just um, watching a film, a documentary on the uh, escaped drug lord, El Chapo, who has escaped from Mexico. And they were talking about the whole drug cartel world down in Mexico. And one of the things that shocked me that makes sense on this note is, so let's say you live in the village and you're not involved in it yet. You're, you're, you have two sons. One gets shot and killed by the cartel people. So what you do is you take your other son and you go to those people that killed your other son and you try to get your living son a job with them because you know that that's it. You know, if they don't work for them, they're now going to come after my second son. They're going to they're going to murder him and I don't have a choice at this point. It's it's submitting to that and it's, you know, it's on all different levels. Unfortunately, that's that's a very brutal level, but um, no different than the monkey, (laughs) you know? Yeah. That's so sad. It's so hard. And, and uh, you know, I won't presume to say what a person should do in that situation. But on the bright side, I ask myself, so how does that end? How, when, when you're in that kind of culture, what can end it? I ask myself over and over. So there is a just horribly sad movie called The Sicilian Girl. And since I'm a Sicilian girl, like I'm really interested in that movie. And she, she is caught in that sort of bullying gang violence web uh, in Sicily and ends up, I, I shouldn't tell you the ending, but it's not a happy movie. And so what is it that stops this? And it's the rule of law. What stopped my grandparents from giving in to bullies is because enough people in their world knew the existence of the modern justice system to not give in too easily, and gradually over time, the modern justice system moved in on it. And I say this emphatically because so many people have this knee-jerk hatred of the modern justice system that has been taught with them, has been taught to them by, by frankly, university professors. And I say this as, as a university professor with a little bit of guilt. Right. Yeah, I understand that. How do we... I really love this whole, I mean, gosh, I hope everyone reads this, reads your book, Meet Your Happy Chemicals, which will have a new title, right? We, we just mentioned it earlier, and we'll mention it at the end of the show. Um, what are some other things, I, what, why I think your book is so important right now is because uh, so many diseases and issues are happening with people, thyroid problems, you name it, because of stress, because of our thoughts, because we are perceiving uh, a threat that really isn't that severe, but our body's treating it as such and releasing these chemicals that, you know, is ruining us in a lot of ways. And on a, in a chronic, on, on a chronic level, you know, for example, we at the Primal Blueprint, we're always about not overtraining and, and doing chronic cardio and things that might mimic that primal response of, uh-oh, this person's in trouble, you know? And so how can I think this is really important material right now because we're living in a world where people are getting sick based on their thoughts and their stress responses? Oh, um, I, I absolutely agree with what you were saying about not overexercising. Um, very good that you're working on that. The reason I say this, um, I, I'm going to tell you this story and feel free to cut it if it's not relevant, but it's just so heartbreaking. I have to repeat it. 
Um, I have readers who write to me from all over the world, and a young man was from a, a former Soviet bloc country, and his grandparents had lived through the most horrible tortures from the Nazis and then the most horrible tortures from the Soviets. And he wrote to me about this in detail. It was horrible. And so guess what he's doing? He is engaged in extreme sports. Mm. So he's constantly punishing his body over and over and over. And he writes to me for advice. And I'm trying to tell him, like, be nice to yourself. Don't, don't tax your body in that way. And he's completely not getting it. He's, he's, what he got out of my message was that your inner monkey wants to be on top. And he's expecting me to tell him about feeling good by being on top. And, oh, you're reminding me to, to try again to write to him. <laughs> you can just send him the primal blueprint. I yes, mean, I absolutely because will. one of the things, you know, it's actually something even people who work at the company, we have to constantly remind ourselves because sometimes you can be having a lot of fun with something that's sort of chronic exercising, a game, a sport. And at the end of the day, though, right, the primal perspective of your brain, your body is this person is in trouble. You know, they are running from a tiger constantly. You know, this is, it's not short bursts, right? Short bursts of stress, the short, the short sprint we're all for that. It does release cortisol. Yes, it does release these hormones, but in short spurts, it's healthy and positive. When you're doing it every single day, your body thinks they're running from trouble every single day for a month now. So let's, you know, so let's shut it down. Let's shut down their thyroid. Let's shut down this. They're trying to, you know, your body's trying to protect, protect you. So this is absolutely related to, you know, what we try to impart I've been a victim of it myself. I overexercised myself into hypothyroidism at one point. Had I known what I know now, I wouldn't have had to ever go on thyroid hormone, but I didn't. And so I suffered for a very long time because I thought that was what was being healthy. And my primal body was saying, oh my gosh, she's in such trouble. We need to shut everything down. We don't want her to procreate or burn fat or do anything because she's in a state of constant stress. Yeah. So aside from the overexercising element, that is one sort of obvious, there's the thoughts that we think. There's the car cutting us off on the road. So, I mean... I'll give you an example. Impart some more wisdom on this. I want to impress upon everybody, this is, this is no joke. You know what I mean? If you're stressed out about Bob at work and bitching about him constantly for, for you know, a few months and you're aggravated and this is where your thoughts are, you're constantly releasing hormones that are going to hurt you, not Bob. <laughs> your anger is not going to get Bob changed. It's going to yes. actually just affect you in a negative way. Here's my favorite strategy. Do not watch the news. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you for saying news. that. Ugh. Yes. Yes. And it's, it may be hard. I, I, again, I wrote a blog post about this. Now, many people think I'm crazy to say that. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of explanations. One is I, it's not just a time thing, but it's like I feel awful when I watch the news. Your brain is designed to focus on problems that you can do something about, not to just constantly get into this state. Now, I have a few other books that are relevant to this. So I wrote a book called Beyond Cynical, Transcend Your Mammalian Negativity. And that's about this world where everybody you know says, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. And in order to have a herd and to feel good and belong, you have to believe that. And then everyone one-ups themselves by knowing the latest crisis. 
And once you get into that, you just feel awful all the time, but you think you have to feel awful to feel good. And by the way, um, I have another book that's uh, relevant to the bribery situation we were talking about. It's called I Mammal, Why Your Brain Links Status and Happiness. And this is when you're surrounded by that um, frustration where you feel one-upped and that feeling is grating on you all the time and you want to know how to get past it. I love that you mentioned not watching the news. This is something I've been doing for a long time. Um, and you're not crazy because I, I, there's plenty of authors that have talked about taking a news fast if you're trying to heal, let's say, from something. Um, and, you know, to even go a step further and watch comedy and things that are positive in order to promote the healing. I wouldn't even go as far as to say, uh, not only just news fast, reality show fast. There's nothing but people arguing and the worst of human behavior and coexistence than what happens on most reality shows where everyone is pitting everyone against each other and there's constant fight and back talk. I have never been so stressed out in my life after watching like one of the housewives reality shows and I'm I'll rip on it publicly. I don't I have no problem with it because it's stressful and it's um something I avoid even hearing the news in the background. If I'm at home visiting family and someone's got news on, I have to walk out of the room because it just is the worst thing for me would be to have a CNN or Fox News on all day long and to just hear the news voice because it's first of all not news I want and not news I think is news, but it's so negative. And uh, guy, my life is so much better when I, I don't do any of it. And I, I rarely do, so I'm, I'm often happy. <laughs> it actually works. That's so interesting. I do the exact same thing. That's con- that alarmism message I hate. And if I'm in a room with that, I walk out. Now, I'll give you another funny example. I don't like to watch movies that are about, you know, either fast death or slow, painful death. I don't want a movie with death. Yeah, let's talk about the CSIs of the world. You know, I know people have sleeping problems and then they watch Law and Order every night. Well, if you're watching murders and rapes right before you go to bed, maybe that's not the best imprint to your subconscious. And so I, I mean, because I am by just trade, I'm a a comedian and a, a comedy writer first and foremost before I got into this. I prefer anyway to laugh and watch comedy, but I really am very careful about the type of negative things I watch. Uh, an action, you know, Transformers type of movie might not affect me in a negative way versus a psychological thriller where people are manipulating each other or there's like a real sick horror film. So there, there might be levels for certain people. You can find your own threshold, but I would tell anyone if they're trying to change their life, and, and I don't care if it's you know trying to quit smoking or you're just trying to get a better relationship, just get rid of all of the negative news and TV shows that are out there because whether you think they're affecting you or not, they are. Absolutely. Yes. What's also, give us a little proof behind that because you do know so much about brain chemicals and what we see and how it affects us. So what could be something to nail that coffin into the audience's uh, head here about about staying away from that stuff. Sure. Um, when cortisol is released, it connects neurons, it paves a pathway, and that wires you to look for a pattern that matches. So your brain is always scanning for threats that threatened you before. Sort of like if if an um, animal goes to a waterhole, they have to scan for crocodiles. So they're always looking for a crocodile. 
So if you're constantly exposing yourself to that kind of alarmism, you're wiring your brain to constantly scan for bad things. It's not good for you at all. I love this work that you're doing, and I love, I cannot wait to read these books. I just want to mention them all right off the bat. Well, first of all, innermammalinstitute.org is where everyone can go. There's lots of, there's a blog, there's free information. And then you've got three books you've mentioned uh, before. I'll reiterate them again. That's Beyond Cynical, Transcend Your Mammalian Negativity, I Mammal, Why Your Brain Links Status and Happiness, and then the one you're doing a new edition on that will have a little bit of an alternate title is called Meet Your Happy Chemicals. And that is going to be January. You're going to have a, a new improved edition of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, it's called Habits of a Happy Brain. Uh, retrain your brain to boost your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin. And it will have exercises that will help lead you in a more step-by-step fashion through all this information. And it will be presented in, in a very clear and simple way that I think is a very enjoyable read. It's not a downer at all, but it does help you address those excuses for being unhappy that many people think that there's like some moral superiority to being happy and, and helps you let go of them. I love it. I love it. Is there anything, so also on your website, innermammalinstitute.org, there are links to buy your books on Amazon and they're available there. Tell us what you'd like to leave our readers with. I could, I feel like I could have a three hour (laughs) podcast with you because there's so much good stuff in what you're doing. Um, Yes, I have a a, a really good uh, self-acceptance lesson. So I take people on zoo tours and we stand in front of the squirrel monkeys and you look at their face and their eyes and they never stop looking for food. They just look, 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 here, 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 here. And that's what our brain evolved to do. Now, those monkeys don't even need food. They get a full diet from the keepers. But their brain is doing what it evolved to do, which is to forage. Now, we humans have broadened our definition of foraging because anything that rewarded you in the past, your brain is looking, 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 looking. So it's not going to stop looking. So you really have to make a big effort to tell yourself, you know what, I'm okay. I I can meet my needs. I'm okay. I can have a rest. (laughs) I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And everyone, check out innermammalinstitute.org and meet your happy chemicals. And, uh, oh, and also you could sign up for my five-day happy chemical jumpstart. It's a, a free email. Oh, great. And that's through your website. There's an opt-in form. Yes, you'll see it. And the freezer. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you, and I hope everyone checks out your work. Thanks. And uh, your work sounds fascinating, too. Thank you. Thank you. Are you someone who appreciates a fast, casual dining experience? Is it important that the taste of your food and the freshness of the ingredients take center stage? Well, bringing that experience to a table near you is the mission of the hottest new franchise concept in North America, Primal Kitchen Restaurants. If you want to learn more about this one-of-a-kind franchising opportunity, go to PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com. That's PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com.